podcast where we explain bands. I'm your host, Olivia Ladd, a music journalist in Nashville, Tennessee. The premise of this podcast is I find a friend, musician, or other journalist in the Nashville music scene, and we discuss the history, discography, art, and influences surrounding our favorite cult bands. Bandsplainer is part of the We Own This Town network of podcasts based in Nashville. You can find more information at weownthistown.net. Bandsplainer is available for streaming on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. To keep up with the latest, follow Bandsplainer on Twitter at Bandsplainer. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Bandsplainer, the podcast where we explain bands. And today we are recording the first episode of season two of Bandsplainer. Very exciting. And um, we have our guest, Olivia Jean, and we are going to talk about The Slits, which is a great band. Super excited to dig into. So you can go ahead and introduce yourself and what you do as an artist, person, all of those things. I'm Olivia Jean. I was in a band called The Black Bells, and now I do uh, solo uh, stuff, and I just put out my second solo album on Third Man Records. Yeah, and it's a great album called Night Owl that you should definitely check out. And you just got back from tour, right? How did that go? Yeah, I uh, opened up for the Tours, and that was great. It was, uh, it's you know, overwhelming to play in front of those size crowds, but it's it was great. Nice. Yeah, I caught you at one of, I guess, a Saturday night Ryman show, so that was very great. That yeah. was awesome to see. Um, kind of funny playing my type of music in the Ryman. <laughs> I, I loved it, though. I was like, this is great. It feels like it's not supposed to be happening, but, like, in a good way. <laughs> very <you>. punk. Yeah, <laughs> that was cool. Yeah, so The Slits, if you're not familiar, just a quick synopsis, is they are a all-women UK punk band, and... They're kind of considered pioneers or like uh, prototype musicians of the proto-punk era. They really like set a standard for a lot of bands, much like someone like maybe the Velvet Underground. They were not necessarily critically acclaimed or sold a ton of records up front when they were around, uh, which was also a very, very short time period, which we'll get into. But they've kind of influenced a ton of bands after... And you see that influence in everything from Riot Girl to, like, ska punk today. So it's, like, a very big range. Uh, I think they're pretty underrated for what they did and kind of how lasting their influence has been. The, like, lineup of the Slits is considered to be Ari Up or Arian Forster, I think is the correct way to say her name. Uh, Viv Albertine on guitar, Tessa Pollitt on bass, and Palmalive on drums. And... There are some different member switches, which we'll uh, get into as we go through time, but that's considered the classic lineup. Uh, When they put out the first album, that's who was on it, or when they played their first shows, that's who was playing. So they formed in kind of early 1976, Palmolive Paloma Romero was a drummer, and she wanted to start a band. She was dating Drew Strummer, and... So apparently it started when she went to a Patti Smith concert and Ari was there with her mom, like throwing a fit. And Ari was 14 (laughs) 
And so she just saw this girl in the crowd and was like, wow, she like has what it takes to be a front woman. Like she doesn't care what anyone thinks. So she walked up to her and was like, do you want to start a band? So they (laughs) did. And so they originally also had Kate Chorus on guitar and Susie Gutsy on bass before the other members joined. And Susie Gutsy kind of moved out pretty soon and Tessa Pollitt joined the band right after that. During that time, also, before Viv joined the band, she was dating Mick Jones of The Clash, which kind of sets the scene also. It's like late 70s UK punk. Punk is this brand new thing. You have bands like The Clash and Buzzcocks and Sex Pistols and all of that sort of forming. And Viv wanted to play in a band So she met Sid Vicious and was like, we should start a band. And they were in Joe Strummer's basement all summer of 1976 in the band Flowers of Romance, which Palmolev also joined. So they were sort of friends or whatever. Um, But Sid Vicious sort of kicked her out of the band, even though it was her own band, and then did his thing. Anyway, so we come to 1977. Mm -hmm. And um, this is when they kind of really solidify things. So they played their first ever gig on March 11, 1977, which is my birthday. That's exciting. Oh, really? Um, And basically this first show is is really important. So like, yeah, I want to dig in here. Um, So it was headlined. It was on the White Riot Tour, uh, the Clash's headlining tour of 1977. And they played with Buzzcocks and Subway Sect, and Prefects were on some of the shows on that tour as well. And so this show was so influential that, like, this show alone inspired a lot of other people to start bands, and it inspired Viv to join the band. So, yeah, we can kind of go into that for a second. So Viv was in a band called the, uh, was it the Castrators? And um, she, so she was in that band while she was, uh, while she saw a Slit show, and she uh, asked the slits she said if you guys need a guitarist I'm in and also Viv was in she was in the flowers of romance but flowers of romance only lasted one year yeah so <laughs> uh, short, so she short was involved in other gigs and saw the slits live and was like I want to be a part of that so she approached them and and they uh, had her join and she replaced um, Kate chorus mm-hmm. this gig was uh, a big deal because this band in general there was no precedent to women in punk rock basically is that all they had was patty smith kind of as an example and no one else was doing that so they talk about i think in the documentary which is called here to be heard the story of the slits they talk about how the men around them like sid vicious or whatever could look to to all of these people they had everyone from elvis to the beatles or you know whatever and then the people that had started punk and women just had no like representation and this is very um i mean this is like proto-punk so it was before it truly existed as a genre so to Mm -hmm. say it was being formed just because of like the societal ideals going around in the uk everywhere at the time really it was just sort of a thing where it was it was the boys club as you know parts of punk still are but especially then so it was cool because this first gig was like you know, members of the raincoats eventually became members of the raincoats, saw it and were like, oh, I never thought I could just pick up a guitar. Now I'm going to do it because someone else did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's like so cool that with their first ever gig, they did that. And there's an emphasis, I think, with a lot of these bands, sort of like Bikini Kill, we've talked about and stuff of 
they're like, oh, well, we didn't know how to play our instruments. We just picked it up, whatever. And in a way, they did it. And it was a lot different back then to where now it's sort of a career thing and mm-hmm. people are very polished, I think, especially in like Nashville. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's hard to find uh, some tr- rock. Yeah, yeah. I wish there was more punk here. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it was cool because that was that was all they knew to do at the time. So it was just super raw, pure and like they ended up kind of coming up with their own guitar styles and like percussion styles and just ways of playing that ended up being like super almost revolutionary and inspired mm-hmm. very, all these other very people. Very experimental. Yeah. Um, very strange melodies, uh, sometimes clashing melodies that somehow fit together. And also, um, I think it was Tessa who said in an interview that in the clubs that all of these, you know, bands that started the punk scene in Britain, they would hang out at the Roxy and the DJ there would play reggae music because in the beginning of punk, there was no punk. So that also has a big influence on their playing because they started out loving reggae. Yeah, that's like a really cool point, which we'll totally get into like their reggae influence and stuff. But yeah, Mm -hmm. so Don Letts, who ended up managing the 1977 White Riot Tour, before all that, when they were all hanging out in the scene and they were teenagers, he DJed, yeah, the Roxy. And I love that point they made. Yeah, like there were no punk records to play at the punk club. (laughs) So they played reggae records. Mm -hmm. Um, And a big part of that is what's interesting about the Slits is all of these sort of white male-oriented punk bands kind of told their story where it was, which isn't a bad thing, but they, they wrote what they knew, and it was a lot of, like, parental rebellion and this sort of, like, stunted view of, of uh, sexuality and things like that. And the Slits were maybe the first band, I think, during that time. I don't want to say first, but the band during that time that most sort of incorporated a reflection of what was happening maybe politically and culturally in the UK because there were a lot of Caribbean and African Caribbean immigrants in the, uh, around the time where there was also sort of a recession and that's kind of where reggae came out of like for what we know uh, what we know reggae to be now uh, sort of really developed um, in the UK, and then it goes from everything to, like, classic reggae to, like, lover's rock and all that. Anyway, the slits were in that scene as much as they were the punk scene. Mm-hmm. So they were going to clubs where, you know, reggae clubs and picking up on that and hanging out with reggae musicians. And um, it's really cool that they kind of jumped on, like, okay, why don't we make punk with this, like, world music sound so mm-hmm. quickly in yeah. their career. And Johnny Rotten, in an interview, said that Another reason they loved reggae is because they, as punks, they could relate to the lyrics of reggae. Yeah. You know, because it had to do with, you know, struggles and and stuff like that. So they they uh, related to the lyrics as well, uh, which is pretty neat. Because you wouldn't imagine the punk scene yeah. to be so into <laughs> reggae at that time. Because yeah. no bands really incorporated that into their music for sure it was like such a straight sound of like what punk was partially because it was so new and Mm -hmm. it was like we're just gonna play these four chords but yeah it was it was really interesting and that there's something to be said there because it's like you can look at crossovers throughout history like right now the sort of like 
hip-hop and yeehaw thing going on but there's a lot of crossovers between like race and class and music that are, are sort of a solidarity alliance sort of thing so that's what this was was like reggae is about like class struggles and uh you know just like life being hard and like punk may have began as like maybe these suburban boys talking about whatever but for the slits it was them like okay we can translate this type of like lyricism or talking about our struggles but we're going to talk about our struggles as women Mm -hmm. sort of in that setting which is like also a big thematic uh, thing but yeah that, that's like a really cool part of them yeah <laughs> yeah they they incorporate feminism I wouldn't say in a hateful way they incorporated it in like a confident strong way because you know in a in a respectable way and that made the bands around them really appreciate them and they all knew that the slits were something special and they had a big support group but also in interviews they say that eventually the bands that were all guys were kind of shifty-eyed towards them yeah a little bit I mean it's inevitable yeah but they did still have that respect and I think it's because they used their feminism as a confidence thing not as a hate thing yeah they definitely yeah. used it as like like people they kind of went about this um which they talk about in different interviews of not like using punk as like anger or or hatred it was more like this is a place where we get to just do whatever we want and like that takes a lot of guts you know like in 1976 to just like literally do whatever you want the way they dressed and cut their hair and like the things they sang about were really really new at the time and they talk about how you know eventually labels can maybe hold someone back but you know, nowadays, I never want to go about, like, as a writer, like, being like, oh, this is, like, a feminist band just because there's women in it. But at this time, it was sort of inherently feminist that they were women in a band talking about what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, everything from assault to, like, societal standards to whatever. That w- that was brand new. That was really cool. And it even took so many years for that to stop being like a revolutionary thing which is the crazy part like until the 90s that wasn't normalized at yeah, all I think they really set the the president for you know feminism and music and you know not being afraid to be a little bit harsh and they really did I think influence the right girl uh, oh yeah genre I think that they were the pioneers in kind of that um incorporating political female issues into music yeah so which is cool because yeah it's like you look at like the clash to me is one of my favorite like political bands like they they write political music that isn't like some weird protest song that doesn't actually sound good you know it's like good music good message so they kind of yeah it was like the same thing but they like made it they personalized that and mm-hmm. and i think for a lot of women personalized it and it is cool that they were the precedent for all these later bands but also just the bands in the scene of like and you have to remember, they were, like, the front woman was 14, you know, 14, 15, and they were all, you know, like, only a few years older, 17, 18, and, uh, like, Susie and the Banshees, X-Ray Specs, Chrissy Hine, the Raincoats, all of those bands kind of happened because of what they were doing, mm-hmm. or, like, around the same time, but, like, the Slits were the first, like, the first one, which yeah, is so cool. Yeah, they need to, they, more people should definitely know about the Slits if they're into punk rock music. Oh, um, Yeah. I do think that they need more attention and uh yeah very influential and you know I got my first Slits record when I was like a pre
preteen. Oh yeah, I was and it really ask, influenced what was your, me. What was your first like experience listening to the Slits? Uh, I was I was probably twelve or thirteen when I got their album. The first one. Yeah, uh, cut. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And uh, I loved it. I listened to it on repeat, and I still do. It doesn't get old. Oh no! It actually, yeah, it's one of those albums where like. I think especially kind of digging in for research for this, I was, like, re-listening to it, and I was like, oh, I never heard that part or, like, this, because it's such an interesting, like, it's an avant-garde punk album, like, it's such an interesting, like, artifact of its time or whatever. Yeah, I think the first time I heard them was probably when I was getting into a lot of other proto-punk, but this, it, like, felt different. I was like, oh, wow, this is, like, this is wild that yeah. this is a thing. At um, first, I, I was a little bit, like, you know, I, I would only listen to it once in a while, but then I really, like, got into it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it can, th- their music maybe could, like, throw people off in a way, and mm-hmm. but I think that was, like, the shock factor was their thing. Like, even the way they looked, um, especially in the earlier days, there was one scene in the documentary where they were like having band practice were passing around like a teasing comb i saw that and i loved it i'm like yeah you might be punk but your hair still has to look exactly i was like that's so (laughs) great that they like put you know so much effort into all of that so 1977 they do the clash tour and you know get a lot of like music press from like zines to like big uk things because people just couldn't figure out what they were doing and so they were like cool we're gonna keep doing it before their first gig before they had ever played live they were featured in a magazine they oh, had an wow. article written about them that. before they even played live wow. because of their them being females in the punk scene it yeah. was like you know pretty rare yeah because it was like a lot of where you know like obviously but a lot of people were like if you were a woman in the scene, you had to be someone's girlfriend or you had to be whatever. And they were like, no, like, we're just starting this band. And like, yeah, it was like people within the scene looked at it as this like, oh, wow, that's different. Like, that's what are they doing? That's Mm -hmm. crazy. Yeah. So they are even before they played live or recorded their first album, they were already shocking people. That's amazing. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) They do that tour. And then 1978, they signed to Island Records. So obviously, they've gotten quite a bit of people like rallying around them and it's interesting that they signed island records and i think it sort of helped shape kind of who they became as a band for sure because island records had everyone from bob marley to like roxy music signed to them so this is like a british jamaican label which now i think operates under warner and they kind of do pop stuff but at the time it was sort of like reggae and experimental art rock Mm -hmm. which is like so cool yeah but they were given part of the deal was they were given like full creative control and so they're sort of still learning how to play their instruments but they wanted like like Ari especially when they were recording cut their first record which we're about to get into wanted to be sort of in the room when every decision was made and so it's really cool how hands-on they were for not being like musicians quote unquote yeah and i think they started playing their instruments two years before they recorded their album yeah so (laughs) it's like crazy yeah cut ended up coming out in 1979 but it was recorded in 78 and to me it's sort of a perfect punk record it's considered one of the like biggest like most important proto-punk records but i think it's a perfect punk record by the standard of like it's just over 31 minutes long all the songs are like right you know one after another it's just like a great like 
like example of what a punk album should be. I did not realize it was only 31 minutes yeah. long. <laughs> no, to be that influential in like half an hour. Like I, yeah, that's wild. <laughs> yeah, they definitely in that album, it did set them apart from other punk music. They incorporated world music, experimental music, reggae into but it still sounded punk it still had that simplistic backbone but they were adding in different influences which was not done before yeah it really wasn't it was such a new thing at the time and so they knew they wanted to kind of go about incorporating those things when they were talking to the label they set them up with dennis bovel who i hope i'm saying that correct was like a dub reggae producer in the UK. And so he was a member of Matumbi, that band. So he went in as this really diverse producer and kind of did whatever they wanted to do. And that's where you get that sound from. So that like spring of 70, late 78, spring of 79, they recorded in um, Ridge Farm in Surrey, which is like a village in West Sussex, England. They they recorded the whole thing there, and so Viv and Ari had kind of written most of the songs, I think, between them. Yeah, it's like a really interesting sort of how it came together. Yeah, and also at that time um, when they put out their album, they had uh, let Paul Olive go um, because she was kind of like questioning like the boundaries of the band. Yeah. And they were confused about her intention, I suppose, that she wasn't confident in the direction they were already in. Um, so they replaced uh, Palmolive with uh, Budgie. Yeah, his nickname who Budgie. later went on to be in Susie and the Banshees. I think his yeah. real name, Peter Edward Clark. Budgie is much cooler, I think. Yeah, so <laughs> in that in cut, it was uh, just uh, Viv, uh, Ariep, and Tessa. Yeah, so they, yeah, they kind of end up being the integral members of, like, mm-hmm. creating the sound as far as, you know, whatever. But Palmolive did kind of, she was very influential in the punk scene. It kind of helped them get to that point but yeah part of that was what the album sounded like and the album cover and a lot of those things but it is interesting that they were so confident going about this and we can actually go into like kind of individual songs and stuff um but my favorite thing about it was just kind of like how they recorded was funny because they said they kind of basically sent out this producer with these three girls and their new drummer teenage girls Mm -hmm. and we're just like okay like make an album and so uh kind of on the point of like them not knowing super well how to play instruments Viv said she kind of felt like a little insecure because like um Dennis and Ari were really strict about what they wanted and in directing it and so I found a quote about the song Newton uh which is a great one on the record and Viv said when I was playing Newton they kept saying you're not getting it by the end, I was so furious, I just thrashed at the guitar and made strange noises. <laughs> and over the intercom, they were like, that was fantastic. So In, she, in Newtown? Yeah. Oh, so cool. she was, like, getting... She said she would, like, cry every night. Like, I imagine being a teenage girl making this, like, really important punk it's record. very overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, it's be very... stressful. They were probably completely out of their element. And not yeah. around people that... Other punk artists who are totally cool being super raw. Uh, totally out of their element I can get that yeah for sure like it was it was a process for them and so I just thought it was funny though that she was like every night I would go to bed in tears and then she just got angry and like made a weird noise and they were like that's what we want like that's usually happy accidents yeah yeah Yeah, which I imagine happens a lot in recording but I love like to hear the story and um there's other things like uh 
I'm trying to find the exact song. I think it was also in New... Yeah, it's in Newton. Um, Dennis said to do percussion for that one, he was like, uh, the quote is, I got hold of an ashtray, a spoon, and a box of matches, yep. and that was my percussion, shaking the matches, tapping the ashtray with the spoon, and occasionally striking a match. Yeah, and by the match strike. Yeah, yeah I love you that. can hear it, like, which is so cool, because I always listen to that and was like, that's like a utensil i don't think mm-hmm. that's a real drum that's cool yeah that is cool and, and uh i've used like sandpaper in my songs nice. and i've used uh, I love pots and pans <laughs> and actually i i had heard about that technique like before i went started going into the studio so just like uh influenced by them yeah mm-hmm. and it's experimenting like, and such this record cut like a lot of these songs are what, you know, what people remember the slits by or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, a big live one they always played was Shoplifting. I love which, that song. I know. It's so good. It's, <laughs> like, about teenage girls shoplifting, which was, like, very punk at the time. It's mm-hmm. still punk. It's and they did cool. a music video for that, too, that you can watch. Yeah. Pretty funny. Yeah, their music videos are wild. Like, you can find most of, the, most of the ones they have, I think, for, like, Shoplifting and Typical Girls are on YouTube. And they're very funny because the way they were all dressed with, like, the big hair and face paint and, like, weird outfits, like, you know, and you have that, like, 70s film look on Mm -hmm. it. It's very cool. Yeah, I love that song. I would attempt to sing it, but I will not do that right now. (laughs) I'm sure you could do it much better than I can. So, yeah, so there's that song is a really good one. And then Typical Girls, I think, is probably their most, like, defining song. It was in Pitchfork's, like, The Story of Feminist Punk in 30 or 33 songs, which has a lot of good stuff on it. And it was so the observer made a list of like the 100 greatest british albums and they got number 58 for cut and it also charted at number 30 on the uk charts at the time which was like kind of a kind of a big deal because once again there was no precedent there wasn't like a separate chart for this sort of music but typical girls i think is like the most defining song on this record and Kurt Cobain actually said that it's, like, one of his top 50 songs of all time, which I think is, like, so cool. Like, they just influence so many people that are punk adjacent in mm-hmm. so many ways. Yeah, I didn't um, know that either. You're full of fun facts. <laughs> Glad. <laughs> um, and then I think another kind of standout is they did a Marvin Gaye cover of I Heard It Through the Grapevine on their record and did it totally different than the original. Like, so very reggae yeah Yeah. (laughs) the phrasing was very sort of uh i don't know the word like reggae phrasing like sort of intermittent and uh paced out and it was very like on a slow beat and it's it's a really great song and i think that was one of the like first one probably the first song i had heard by them and i was like okay so like it's cool to see a cover because that's like a really concrete way of like comparing a band's sound to like some sort of standard I guess in a way so for them it was like oh like I've heard the Marvin Gaye song and now I see what they're doing musically by like listening to this cover which is pretty interesting yeah Um, I think the song that I I I mean I if I had to choose a favorite it would be love und romance love und romance (laughs) I love that that song again like very strange riffs strange vocal melodies yeah but it all works yeah, together. and that's that's the cool thing is like it was like 
I mean, even to today's standards, just very avant-garde and, like, weird guitar noises. Like, you kind of feel, like, the Fred Sonic Smith vibes, mm-hmm. like, sort of thing before that was a thing. Yeah, it's just cool because it is, like, all these weird layers and it, it works. Like, it just magically is, like, okay, like, they knew what they were doing. Like, they may have been teenagers that thought they couldn't play instruments, but, like, they did pretty great. Like, Sometimes that's, you know, what when magic happens when you don't know what you're supposed to be doing so you just do what you feel yeah and I think that's what they did yeah I think that's really important I feel like that's how I go through life I'm like well I don't know how to do this so because I don't know the rules I can do whatever I want like with anything and that's the best way to be creative I think think that's I thought Um, that was going through their heads yeah yeah I'm just betting yeah yeah (laughs) I could probably from experience so it's just it's so cool that they yeah, that record is so great. It's so great. Yeah, it's definitely a classic. Uh, definitely something that people should be listening to. Yeah, their second album uh, was uh, Untitled. Uh, their Untitled album in 1980. And um, it was uh, consisted of demos and live performances. And it was uh, quite a contrast from Cut. Yeah. Because it was a lot more, you know, I guess you could say traditional punk. A very simplistic not a lot of reggae in that album it was kind of a reflection of where they uh started out which later in 1988 they released a double peel sessions which is like we'll get into later which is like my favorite thing though when bands the peel session gets released but yeah so it was all these demos and stuff so it was like way before they had polished anything or when they recorded these they didn't polish them or whatever so it's like a really interesting sort of retrospective collection of songs that are still really good mm-hmm. like for raw punk music yeah and so they did a lot of touring during this time and kind of uh even more so integrated into the reggae scene they had uh people like nina cherry coming and playing with them on the road and that's like a really cool cool thing to think about that they were integrating when punk was this sort of very boundaried genre where it was like all of these kind of men controlling it or like you had to look a certain way or whatever they had lots of other artists or lineups where they were like opening for reggae bands and things like that still playing punk music Mm -hmm. and so around this time too kind of to go back to like the scene a cool thing is that punky reggae party the song by bob marley actually originally mentioned the slits in the lyrics i think it changed over time but that song is kind of like a exemplary of like exactly what was going on during these years that we're talking about because it was a lot of like the reggae clubs all the punks would hang out in and then they'd play reggae at the punk clubs and it was like this shared culture and so it's cool that bob marley like like the slits absolutely when i i saw the slits in 2008 oh wow in michigan and uh, our area just kept yelling punky reggae punky reggae <laughs> i, I love that so much <laughs> and it's so cool like the crossovers you know like police and thieves the clash did that's a reggae song that they did a cover of and then they did a song called lovers rock which is alluding to reggae and stuff yeah so that's kind of like what was going on and i think in the documentary they talked about ari was such like a force like she would walk in these clubs and like bob marley even met her and was just like what are like what is your thing like what are you doing and then like caught on that like mm-hmm. it's a way to like bring 
reggae into this like form of like rock music mm-hmm. um, yeah I, I think, think that so Aria cool. probably made a friend in everybody she yeah. just was wild child super in her own world just like a free bird so I can definitely see how other artists saw something really special in her for she sure. wasn't trying to be anybody else yeah and that's yeah. like what Viv said like seeing her live yeah seeing her live she Viv was like she's so iconoclastic was like the quote she's like I never seen like as good of a front person since Shawnee Rotten and then I saw her and I thought she was better than any woman or guy I'd ever seen do yeah. that and I was like oh that's that's amazing yeah like, that's so cool but yeah she um even being the youngest member of the band had this like raging personality which you can like hear in the lyrics uh, just like some of the songs they sang were so like uh I guess like show stopping or sort of like made people take a second glance at the time along with the name which I think she was she was the one that came up with it I'm pretty sure the slits um I'm pretty sure she did because in an interview she was asked what it meant yeah and she said it can mean three things it can mean uh violence a slit in a skirt or and I think she says we all know what that yeah. is. <laughs> that was kind of like along with their look and all that we were talking about. Her personality was like to come up with that name was like when you see that it's, you know, along with a lot of the buzzcocks and like sex pistols, it was like this very like pornographic, violent, like whatever. And then it was teen girls like playing it. But that was like kind of what you had to do. And I think a lot of women today, even it has to be almost like a performative character thing to get people to like look past the fact that this is like three women in a band or whatever so they were like okay we're gonna call ourselves the slits and like shock and scare people and then they won't be worried what we're doing like you're already initially shocked yeah so (laughs) after that like you're there you're in it i remember like there were there was a magazine they were talking about that wouldn't even write they had an article about the slits but they refused to put their name in the article yeah. Oh, and that's so that's one thing I forgot to talk about cut was the album cover. So, oh, yeah. yeah, I want to talk about that. So the album cover, which like if you're listening, you can Google it, look it up. You may have seen it. It basically has it has Ari, Tessa and Viv. They wanted to do like a weird cover. So apparently when they were recording this, they went outside and it's kind of in front of like a farm house sort of thing and they were wearing just loincloths and they ended up kind of like fighting around in the mud and getting mud all over each other so they're like basically nude covered in mud their hair is all muddy and they're just like kind of grimacing at the camera and it was so like they sort of had to do that because it was like the complete opposite of this like look of any what like all of the women singers putting out these like records at the time with like the 70s like perfect look they literally like rolled around in the mud and took a picture of it Mm -hmm. and that like that's so powerful like their bodies are basically fully exposed on that cover and it was a pretty controversial (laughs) album cover yeah like there was yeah i think it was like a different magazine wouldn't put the picture in it and like I read, I couldn't, like, fact check it, but I read in one article that apparently someone claimed they, like, ran their car off the road because they saw a billboard of, like, (laughs) their album. And I was like, that's so great because it's, like, sort of forcing, I think, men at the time to just be comfortable with, like, uh, or be uncomfortable to be like, oh, does this make you uncomfortable that we're, like, 
we have bodies and we're women and we're like doing this and so they like put themselves right on the cover like that and uh yeah where i see it is like yeah we're chicks yeah here we are (laughs) and deal with it now listen to the music yeah exactly (laughs) got all that out of the way now listen to the music because there's no way to like divert sexuality completely i think especially in a genre like punk because it's uh you know like a lot of it does uh punk is punk is childish in a way it was made by teenagers at the time and kind of a lot of the views are like anger or like a weird feeling or whatever and theirs was like just a total rejection of not only norms but like we're not gonna let you like paint us as this like like you know like market us like sexually or whatever and i've even read read some interviews i think with viv and uh tessa like like recently where they were like we see which is their view on this you know this is complicated but like they see uh you know artists now and they were like what we were doing was we just didn't want to like be fake or like just have like a look or whatever so they they did that you know which is of course a different type of marketing but i think at the time it was so important to like do something like that to have a album cover where they were nude and covered in mud Um, obviously they love to have a shock factor yeah their name and that album cover exactly it like totally contributed to to what they were doing and i think it is a good visual for the actual music on there because they're talking about things like sexual assault or whatever but it's it's like owning your body and being like a woman and punk and saying all these things years before feminism was accepted and all that so Mm -hmm. it's like yeah, that album cover is pretty, uh, pretty important. Yeah, pretty it really cool. does. It really <laughs> does uh, connect with the music, definitely. And also, it has that kind of tribal look to it, which is another element that they really have in their music. So it all fits together. Yeah, for sure. There's and actually that, a lot of meaning to that cover. Yeah, that's you what know? they were going for. It was mm-hmm. like the the tribal thing uh, because they did incorporate world music and like intersect with all of these other artists. So it, yeah, like totally was just like natural raw like back to the basics sort of like thing which is so interesting yeah yeah so they toured around and then in they put out the the untitled sort of retrospective and in 1981 they signed to cbs records and did return of the giant slits but this record is really really interesting i remember the first time i heard it i just like it's uh psychedelic not in the sense that it's like psych rock but it like truly like i felt like my brain expanded <laughs> like when i was extremely to it. experimental yeah, yeah very experimental and wild. Uh, darker i would say yeah it's much yeah i think it's much more uh darker tone and like the album cover to this one is sort of like a painting of them and lots of like dark you know red blue and black um but yeah, this, I think they further kind of made their journey into world music here, and they sort of expanded punk's boundaries for everyone in punk at the, like, by doing this record, even though it didn't sell a ton at the time or whatever. Like, this, you can look at a lot of, I think, punk artists now and see how this, like, is influential, just, like, as far as setting a scene or, like, being the first people to be, like okay, this, like, type of avant-garde, like, world music, weird time measures and all of this in the music, like, you can do that and it's still punk. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I would think that they weren't considered punk after that album because it was such a contrast 
from what was going on. They kind of created their own genre. Yeah, they yeah. they kind of did make their own genre. Like, um, and they sort of, I think, as dub had developed at the time too, like really incorporated that more because there is like a bit of electronic like production and all that. And uh, yeah, there's so many good songs on this one, like Earthbeat. I love it's the first one, but I think that's yeah, like one of my favorite. I covered that songs. at when I was. 14 oh wow and uh i didn't know the lyrics at all so i just made up my own lyrics but it was that it was that song that's amazing (laughs) i love that so much and also a song to listen to if you really want to understand how experimental uh that album is is face place yes yeah face place is a weird song it is (laughs) it is super weird weird. (laughs) yeah i feel like uh face place and animal space slash spacier are like like (laughs) <laughs> two, of, two of the most experimental on there. Um, but, uh, like, yeah. Ari Up's vocals just are so good. They really so are. And good. she, like, definitely evolves as a vocalist. And what's interesting about her vocals is she has, like, a German-Jamaican accent. Uh, so she's already kind of going in with this really unique way of phrasing and pronouncing things. And here it's a bit more melodic, even though they aren't, like, traditional melodies, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, and lots of layering melodies as well. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's yeah, it's really cool to see that they did, like, grow as musicians and kind of become this unit of, like, what the slits are, even though they broke up soon after this. Yeah. Uh, I think that they probably grew confident in just going in their own direction because in the beginning, they were kind of following their the footsteps of where the scene was going in the beginning, and then they became more confident as they went on to really just grow into their own and not stick to that quote punk sound yeah for sure just like no no rules on this which is like once again like how the best art is made and it incorporates like sounds from reggae dub and world music and all of that but also like lyrically i think they kind of said most of what they wanted to say in the like punk sense on the first one where it was very like straightforward lyrics and all of that and this one is a lot more um, sort of poetic and, and subtle and really interesting. Like, Earthbeat is is uh, sort of about the earth, and it's sort of, like, psychedelic in that sense. And it's all, uh, you know, kind of carries that theme of, like, their relationship to the world and themselves. And it's, like, very uh, introspective and kind of... Uh, not not punk in that sense mm-hmm. yeah it's really really wild but yeah earthbeat i think i would definitely just recommend yeah listening to that song um i think my mom still has a vhs of me playing that actually i need to that's find amazing. it <laughs> you should put that on instagram or something that's so good yeah. um yeah so that record uh there's just really a change there but i think that record is just like so so important after that record however they became confident in their sound and all of these things, but in 1982, they sort of decided to break up. Uh, so this band really only ran from officially, like, 1977 to 1982, which is a very short, short time. There is a reunion we'll talk about, but um, during the breakup, it was kind of hard for them, and Ari ended up, she had twins soon after the band broke up and kind of went to, like, the jungles of Brazil and Jamaica and then came back to the UK a bit. Tessa actually faced, like, heroin addiction during this time, so it's uh, kind of interesting 
just just like they were so kind of used to being a unit I think that it was hard for them to break up especially um, being so young and that's all they knew yeah, yeah I mean yeah they like became adults while they were in this band uh so it's like sort of a sort of an interesting thing and know, then yeah. um Palm Palmolive was saying transitioning out of punk was like a withdrawal from a substance you know yeah such a going back to you know how the normal lifestyle yeah probably yeah, really messed with so them a little bit different you know? at the time too it's like now you can I can go to a punk show on a Tuesday and go to a country show on Wednesday and like a DIY show the next day and like it's not weird but then it was like a whole different like sector of society for them you know like the way they looked and all of that so and it really was a unit I yeah feel like so. yeah I think so so it was yeah so for years they kind of like broke out of this and a couple of them did normal things but that uh they did break up um but like a lot of these bands they didn't you know it was like a very short term and like so influential during that time and in 1988, they released the the John Peel sessions, uh, which is cool because they were recorded kind of before, I believe before most of them, before their first album. And I always think that's cool. Like a lot of the bands we've done on this podcast have Peel sessions. And it's just cool to see like what a band sounds like just playing live like from the beginning. And then you can kind of see the roots of like where they went after that. Yeah, three of the songs on the Peel sessions are on cut. Love and Romance, Newtown, and Shoplifting. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great... I would definitely recommend listening to that. I would definitely go through the albums, but, like, the Peel Sessions really give you an insight to, like, okay, like, they had some talent here. Like, that. that's cool. Mm -hmm. So, after they broke up uh, in about 2005, Tessa was in the UK and Ari came back and wanted to kind of get the band back together, so... They did an EP called Revenge of the Killer Slits, and they had Paul Cook, who used to be in the Sex Pistols, and Marco Peroni, who used to be in Susie and the Banshees and Adam and the Ants, and then a couple of younger women. So they had Anna Schultz, Adele Wilson, and Holly Cook, who is Paul Cook's daughter, actually, kind of put together like a, a band, and they toured and things, and... I think if it, it was Tessa that eventually, was it Tessa or Vit, one of them eventually kind of left the reunion tour situation, I guess. I think it was Viv, actually. But they did do an album, another album, Trapped Animal, in 2009, which is an interesting record. <laughs> I like it a lot. They do, um, they do, did add in a lot of pop influences, and yeah. actually there is auto-tune at one point. Yeah, it's, like, very different. <laughs> uh, synth in there. But it's crazy, because uh. it's so many over 30 years later, I guess. Uh, but yeah, it is, uh, it kind of does remind me of the parallels of, like, Bikini Kill, of where they were punk, and then now Kathleen Hanna's in, like, a synth pop band, sort mm -hmm. of, and it's the same thing, but it's just, you know, as time goes on, they have to change it, and they're older, and I feel like they're that, doing the same thing they've always done, which is a shock factor. Yeah, true. They were like, you know? well, you expect this from us? Now we're going to do this. Yeah. It's a really um, good album. But uh, I feel like in Trapped Animal that they do add in a lot of feminist lyrics to that album. And in the first track, Ask Ma, there's this uh, lyric in there that I love. And um, I believe it's... Uh, men who need us to be their mother or who hate us because of their mother. 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty sassy. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. I mean, it is cool to see that they were, I think, in their 40s at this point or whatever. But, uh, yeah, like, it was, I think, a little bit more, whereas then feminism also wasn't so accepted. So it was, like, what they were doing was feminist, but it was, like, here they definitely have more, like, concrete themes of that of like this is what we're singing about as like grown women now that have gone through life you know it's really Mm -hmm. interesting i definitely haven't listened to this album as much as the others but it's like pretty good for a you know 30 years later (laughs) to make an album it's like yeah Um, it's a great album yeah um i really enjoy it after 2009 so they were actually so the documentary we were talking about here to be heard they uh, filmed quite a bit of it when this was happening. There's some footage from, like, already on the tour and all of this, but things were a little weird where some people left the band, the younger members, and Ari was kind of stressful and started uh, kind of cutting the other members off, and um, unfortunately it turned out she was very, like, sick. She had cancer and didn't really tell anyone, and they knew something was up, and died shortly after in 2010 yeah she didn't want to make it known but she did take it out on other people her frustration or her pain yeah and people didn't know what she was so angry about yeah and tried to make it easier i think in a way of like let me like distance it and then it won't be so hard i think in a way that drove her to want to do the reunion in the first place i'm not sure if she knew like in the very beginning in 2005 or whatever but i think in a way she might have or like when they were doing the touring I think it was like she wanted to get as much done as she could or prove to herself that she still could while she was able so that's really sad but I think it is cool that she at least got to do like one last album mm-hmm. uh, since she felt so defined by like being a member of the slits in her life was yeah I'm so glad they did that it was insane to see them live yeah what was talk about that what was it like it was to in see a small live? club That's amazing. small super small dark club in pontiac michigan which is not a city you go to very often <laughs> to see shows um and it was packed it was packed in there and uh, tessa was there and uh and Ariel was just nuts on stage and uh, viv was there and uh it was just like amazing I was totally blown away, so inspired. Uh, I was 18 when I got to see that show, and uh, Ariel was just nuts on stage. You would never imagine she was sick. Yeah, what is she was jumping around? Her, like presence, I can't imagine like being in the room. I feel like it would like be like electrifying. Just like. she's so gigantic on stage, and and really like connects with the crowd, talks to the crowd a lot. It's kind of silly on stage a little bit, you yeah. know. She's not she's not so serious. She's just having a great time. That's awesome. And I she love really that she like still was like that. Later. Yeah, you would yeah. have never imagined that there was anything going on. Wow, mm-hmm. that's awesome. And that's like you can see in the videos and stuff, just like her personality. Like it just seemed like so like you get why people kind of just watch this happen or like even why people would be uh, like guys in the scene would maybe be mad about her or something because she was so like just enigmatic as like a person um that's amazing to get to see them live did they play mostly like the new yeah they played a lot of the new stuff when i saw them yeah which i wasn't too familiar with i i knew cut yeah you know (laughs) but uh it was a great show that's awesome i'm so lucky to have seen them yeah that's like that's amazing that's really cool so that is pretty much the history of the slits but is there anything else we want to like expand on or add 
Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about uh, Viv Albertine's autobiography. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Viv Albertine did write an autobiography. I have not read it, but Olivia has, so. Yeah, it's called um, Close, 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 Music, 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 Boys, Boys, Boys. (laughs) (laughs) I love that title. (laughs) And uh, it's her autobiography, and it just speaks about uh, her career before the slits, during the slits, and after the slits. And I really uh, loved reading about the beginning of her becoming a musician and how there was a camaraderie between her and other punk musicians where they were really helping her out, you know, with her guitar, you know, tuning her guitar, yeah, you know, really like, like helping her out, get to where she was. Yeah. Uh, she bought her guitar for like 200 quid, which I'm not sure what that would be in American money, but I assume it was pretty cheap at the time. And, uh, she said she would, Sid Vicious was like someone who would help her I thought it was funny, I can't, I wish I had written down the exact quote, but she was talking about during that time when she was becoming a musician, how she was dating Mick Jones, he was like, he would never help me, all the other guys help me, like, they would (laughs) teach me, which I thought was interesting, but yeah, she was, like, kind of in, like, one of the guys, like, made her way in and just, like, was doing this punk music at a very early time, uh, which I think is really cool, I definitely want to check out that book. So, after Cut, uh, when Palmolive left when she wasn't sure of the direction of the band she actually ended up joining the raincoats which is like also another hugely influential punk band um that is it self-titled i can't remember the name uh, of yeah, that one record uh, palmolive played on the debut album in 1979 with the raincoats yeah they're they're um yeah their self-titled debut yeah she was on that and i think that is like one of the most important like punk albums as well uh there's a great 33 and a third book written by Jim Pelly, uh, who's a music journalist on that. And it's like a great book, a uh, great album, like fairy tale in the supermarket, all that. So it is cool to see that not only did the slits influence so many bands around them at the time, as in just being a woman on stage and sort of gave other women the power to do that because they did it and other women saw it, but they influenced uh as music does happen anywhere when there's sort of a hub uh i feel like each decade sort of has like different cities and there's like hubs of music or whatever and so as happens just influenced a lot of other bands to start and were members of other bands uh so you wouldn't have the raincoats if you hadn't had her starting out in the slits and stuff like that so i think that's really cool Well, that is pretty much the history of the slits, and you should definitely listen to Cut and Return of the Giant Slits and all of those things. Yeah, thank you for being on this episode. Absolutely. Um, This is a really, really cool thing that you're doing. Thank you. Mansplainer, I love it. It's very Very happy to to do this with you. Thank Thank you. you. Um, Cool, and thank you for listening.